0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Yesterday, November the 10th, 2007, was a 200 32nd birthday of the United States Marine Corps. On November... Yeah. How many Marines we have in here? One, two... I knew Jonathan was. A couple of Marines. <laughs> Somebody in the sound booth still clapping. Uh, on November the 10th, 1775, the Second Continental Congress resolved to raise two battalions of Continental Marines and thus began... Uh, Their tradition. In honor of the United States Marine Corps, and since today is Veterans Day, uh, we're going to begin by just taking some time to reflect upon the value of our freedom and the importance of honoring our vets. Perhaps the most significant battle for the United States Marine Corps in their history was the battle. Of Iwo Jima, commemorated by the Marine Memorial that's in Washington D.C., commemorating the flag raising at Iwo Jima. My father was a second lieutenant of Marines with the Fourth Marine Division, went ashore with the first wave on February the 19th, 1945. He only spent two days there. He got a Bronze Star and a Silver Star and two Purple Hearts, and decided he never wanted to go camping again. During World War II, there were 81 Marines and 57 Navy Medal of Honor recipients. During the assault on Iwo Jima, 22 Marines and five sailors received the Congressional Medals of Honor for their actions. Twenty-seven men received the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry during the Battle of Iwo Jima, 22 Marines out of a total of 81 for the entire war, along with four Navy corpsmen and one Navy landing craft commander. Exactly half of the awards issued to Marines and corpsmen of the 5th Amphibious Corps were posthumous. Within a larger institutional context, Iwo Jima represented more than one-fourth of the 80 medals of honor awarded Marines during the Second World War. It was said by Admiral Chester Nimitz, among the Americans who served on Iwo Iwo Island, Uncommon Valor, Was a Common Virtue. As we reflect upon our veterans, I thought I would read a citation for the Medal of Honor given to Captain Joseph Jeremiah McCarthy, who was commissioned in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. He was with the 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines, 4th Marine Division. Citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as commanding officer of Company G, 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines, 4th Marine Division, an action against enemy Japanese forces during the seizure of Iwo Jima Volcano Islands on 21 February 1945. Determined to break through the enemy's cross-island defenses, Captain McCarthy acted on his own initiative when his company advance was held up by uninterrupted Japanese rifle, machine gun, and high-velocity 47-millimeter fire during the approach to Matayoma Airfield No. 2. Quickly organizing a demolitions and flamethrower team to accompany his picked rifle squad, he fearlessly led the way across 75 yards of fire-swept ground, charged a heavy, heavily fortified pillbox on the ridge, to the front, and personally hurling hand grenades into the emplacement as he directed the combined operations of his small assault group, completely destroyed the hostile installation. Spotting two Japanese soldiers attempting, to, uh, uh, attempting an escape from the shattered pillbox, box, he boldly stood upright in full view of the enemy and dispatched both troops before advancing to a second emplacement under greatly intensified fire and blasted the strong fortifications with a well-planned demolitions attack. Subsequently entering the ruins, he found a Japanese taking aim at one of his men and with alert presence of mind jumped the enemy, disarmed, and shot him with his own weapon. Then intent on smashing through the narrow breach, he rallied the remainder of his company and pressed a full attack with furious aggressiveness until he had neutralized all resistance and captured the ridge. An inspiring leader and indomitable fighter, Captain McCarthy consistently disregarded all personal danger during the fierce conflict, and by his brilliant professional skill, daring tactics, and tenacious perseverance in the face of overwhelming odds, contributed materially to the success of his division's operations against this savagely defended outpost of the Japanese Empire. His cool decision and outstanding valor reflects the highest credit upon Captain McCarthy and enhance the finest traditions of the United States Naval Service. On Veterans Day, 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower issued the following proclamation. Whereas it has long been our custom to commemorate November 11th, the anniversary of the ending of World War I, by paying tribute to the heroes of that tragic struggle, and by rededicating ourselves to the cause of peace. And whereas in the intervening years, the United States has been involved in two other great military conflicts, which have added millions of veterans living and dead to the honor rolls of this nation. And whereas the Congress passed a concurrent resolution on June 4, 1926, calling for the observance of November 11th with appropriate ceremonies, and later provided in an act approved May 13, 1938, that the 11th of November should be a legal holiday and should be known as Armistice Day. And whereas in order to expand the significance of that commemoration and in order that a grateful nation might pay appropriate homage to the veterans of all its wars who have contributed so much to the preservation of this nation, the Congress, by an act approved June 1st, 1954, changed the name of the holiday to Veterans Day. Now, therefore, I, Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States of America, do hereby call upon all of our citizens to observe Thursday, November 11, 1954, as Veterans Day. On that day, let us solemnly remember the sacrifices of all those who fought so valiantly on the seas, in the air, and on foreign shores, to preserve our heritage of freedom. And let us reconsecrate ourselves to the task of promoting an enduring peace so that their efforts shall not have been in vain. I also direct the appropriate officials of the government to arrange for the display of the flag of the United States on all public buildings on Veterans Day. In order to ensure proper and widespread observance of this anniversary, all veterans, all veterans' organizations, and the entire citizenry will wish, uh, will wish to join hands in the common purpose." For this end, I am designating the Administrator of Veterans Affairs as Chairman of Veterans Day National Committee, which shall include such other persons as the chairman uh, may select. Our nation achieved its independence through through those who fought for this nation, through their participation in the military, places like Bunker Hill, Saratoga, Cowpens, Valley Forge, Trenton, and Yorktown. They sacrificed their health and their fortunes, their families, and their lives to establish a republic where men were free and the power of government was limited. The dream of liberty became a reality because of their sacrifice. But liberty and true freedom are always under attack. Each generation must win again those precious freedoms. Each generation has been called upon to send their best, their brightest and their bravest, to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice so that we may all enjoy the liberty, the freedom, and the security that we now have. Down through the centuries, men and women have served in peacetime and in war. They have defended this nation at home and on fields of combat from the Chosin Reservoir in Korea to Flanders Field in Europe, from Chapultepec in Mexico to Iraq and Afghanistan. As Americans, we must never take our liberty for granted. We must always remember those who have served and honor their service. For we must remember that freedom, whether political or spiritual, is never free. It is always bought with a price, and that price is blood. The blood that has been shed on the battlefields of our history and secured the freedom to proclaim the spiritual, has secured for us the freedom to proclaim the spiritual freedom which was purchased by the bloodshed on Calvary's cross, the ultimate battlefield of all history. So we open our service this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we have the privilege to live in this nation with the heritage that we have For all of its faults and flaws, for all of the ways in which we have seen liberties eroded down through the last 200 years, nevertheless, we still have the freedom to stand and proclaim the truth of your word. We have this freedom because of those who have fought, for those who have died, for those who have paid the ultimate price, that we may have freedom. Freedom is something so dear that we often forget how crucial it is to every breath we breathe. Father, we are thankful for those who have served. We're thankful that you have uh, blessed this nation in so many ways that throughout its history it has been a bastion for biblical truth, despite changes in culture, erosion of belief. Nevertheless, it is still a nation where the truth of your word is proclaimed. Evangelists carry out their ministries daily, and missionaries are supported that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Father, let us not forget that our ultimate freedom is a spiritual freedom that was bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has purchased our freedom so that we are not our own but his, and we now live to serve him. And as we gather together to worship you this morning, may we have a fresh appreciation and capacity for understanding the freedom that we have to do this, and may all that we say and do honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. One of the most significant aspects of worship is celebrating the Lord's table. For in the act of celebrating the Lord's table on a regular basis, we proclaim the Lord's death and its significance for us. The night before we went to the cross, the Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And in that meal, he invested two elements with new meaning. The Passover meal was an opportunity for the Jews to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It not only looked back to what God had done in redeeming them from being slaves in Egypt and bringing them into a new land and a new life, but it also foreshadowed and pictured the ultimate deliverance of from slavery, from spiritual slavery, slavery to sin, that would be accomplished on the cross. For there the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins and that through him we might have deliverance, freedom, from slavery to sin and have a new life that was not based on who we are, what we've done, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And that forms the... Structure for understanding the Lord's table focuses on two things, who he is and what he did. The bread pictures who he is, the cup pictures what he did. The bread is unleavened. Leaven in the scripture is a depiction of sin, a symbol for sin. And so the bread was unleavened because it was picturing the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity did not partake of Adam's original sin. He was born without a sin nature. He had no personal sin, and therefore since he maintained the perfect righteousness with which he was born in his humanity, he was qualified to go to the cross and there to pay the price for the sins of the world. So when we take of the bread, we think of who Jesus Christ is. And all that was... Part of God's plan to bring about the incarnation, so that we could have a perfect Savior. Second element is the cup. The picture in the cup is the color of the wine or the grape juice, the reminiscent of the color of blood, blood that is shed by a sacrifice. For Jesus Christ was a sacrifice on the cross when He first came to John the Baptist. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Any Jew who heard him say that would immediately be reminded of the Passover Lamb that was slain for the nation each Passover. So when we take of the cup, we think of the covenant that was made, the new covenant that was established at the cross because of the sacrifice Of Jesus Christ. So the cup represents his work, the completed work of our salvation, that he did everything for us, and there's nothing that we can do to add to that. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, then it would simply be an empty ritual. For the believer, it is not an empty ritual, it is a memorial ritual that has meaning because we understand who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. When the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's table, they came to the table with a mindset that was dominated by uh, worldliness and by carnality. When they came, they came for the wrong motives and for the wrong reasons. They came out of fellowship, and so the Apostle Paul warned them that it was necessary that when they come to the Lord's table that they should be in fellowship. So he said that they should examine themselves to make sure that they were prepared to partake of the Lord's table. So we'll begin our worship service at the communion service with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, make sure that you are uh prepared spiritually to partake of the Lord's table and then I'm going to ask Doug Daly if he would please return thanks for the bread let's pray Father we thank you for this privilege of celebrating Jesus Christ's death on the cross Thank you that uh, he was willing to go in our place to serve as our substitute so that we can have eternal life simply through believing in his work. We thank you for the bread which commemorates his person, his impeccability, and uh, the sacrifice that he made in his person in going to the cross. We pray that as we partake of the elements for concentration and that the Holy Spirit will help us to recall the mind of the things that we've learned so that this will be meaningful. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. At Passover meal, our Lord took the bread, and having broken it and distributed it to the disciples, he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you, take and eat. Going to ask Doug Carn if he would please return thanks for the cup. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that allows us to gather together today to celebrate the Lord's table. And Father, just as we as Americans celebrate victory on the battlefield, we as believers celebrate the far greater victory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his substitutionary spiritual death on the cross. Father, as we take the cup representing that substitutionary spiritual death in his blood, we pray that you will bless the cup to his glory and honor. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. The cup represents the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. It is the ultimate basis for our praise and worship of Him. In heaven, the heavenly chorus sings, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. When our Lord took the cup, He said, This is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together. We'll sing hymn number 185. When I survey the wondrous cross, we'll sing the third verse softly. Crescendo on the fourth. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have loved us in such a way that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us, that you have not left us in darkness, but you have given us the light of your Word in order to understand reality as it is, as you have created it, and as you have defined it. And Father, whenever we recognize that whenever we live and think apart from the truths of your word, we are divorcing ourselves from reality. We are living in a world of fantasy generated by the uh, idolatry of our own sin nature. And we can never have true happiness or significance in life when we are living on the basis of such autonomy and relativism. Now, Father, as we study... continue our study in uh, the study of the angelic conflict and our role in it we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we may have a greater understanding of just how our own thinking has been insidiously influenced by the thinking of Satan the thinking of the world system around us and help us to see with objectivity where we need to exchange the human viewpoint paganism in our own souls for the eternal truths of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on the angelic conflict and the assaults of Satan on the human race. We've gone through the direct assaults, and beginning last week we began to focus on the indirect assaults. The indirect assaults are those assaults where Satan attacks the human race Indirectly, either through circumstances or through individuals or through systems of thought that dominate uh, human history, systems of thought that involve religious uh, systems, philosophical systems, uh, just any kind of system that allows man to think that somehow he can find meaning and significance and happiness apart from complete orientation to the authority of God and His grace and His word. Last time we looked at some of the elements of demon influence, for that's what we're talking about, and we looked at a passage in James chapter 3, and the focal verse is James 3.15, that this wisdom, that is the wisdom of man, no matter how sophisticated it might be, no matter how uh, intellectual it may be, no matter what the veneer of morality or ethics, no matter how high the standards or the virtues may be that are espoused by any particular system, it all comes under the category of human wisdom in Scripture. And this wisdom is not, James says, that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. demonic. Now, that's hard for a lot of people to really uh, comprehend and understand. It may sound rather abrupt, rather harsh to you, especially if you are particularly impressed by anyone who has written on any particular topics, uh, anywhere from art to music to uh, economics or political theory or whatever the field of human intellectual activity may be, ultimately it all comes out of some sort of philosophical orientation. And it's either going to be grounded on the word of God or it's going to be grounded on some autonomous ultimate reference point, usually within the creation itself. And this is why it is called demonic, not because if you get involved with it, you're going to start uh, sacrificing babies to Satan or anything like that, but because it is, it partakes of the same fundamental destructive thought forms that characterize the thinking of Satan. And so this includes all world religions other than Christianity. It includes all forms of Christianity other than biblical grace-oriented Christianity. And so it's important for us to understand how the Bible teaches us to think and how the Bible, uh, and what the Bible teaches us about reality. So just a few points to summarize some of the things I covered last time. First of all, all human wisdom is equated with demonic thinking. I want to express that just about as harshly as I can because often we get very, very comfortable with whatever system of rationalism that uh, appeals to us. We rationalize our comfort zones, uh, what sins we're going to pay attention to and what sins we're going to ignore what thought forms we're going to uh, validate and which ones we're going to oppose, simply because of the trends of our own sin nature, because of the affinities of our own personality, because of the uh, way our parents, our peers, our teachers taught us as we were growing up. And so we become comfortable with certain things, and, and uh, we try to somehow blend that, those, those comfortable beliefs with the Bible. And often paganism gets baptized as Christianity and we become convinced that the way we think is really biblical when it is nothing more than another form of baptized paganism. The ultimate issue in worldliness, which is one of the major areas of demon influence, is the thinking of Satan. And the ultimate cause is that the thinking of Satan Glorifies the creature over the Creator. The Creator is minimized, if not completely eradicated, from significance in our thinking. Man, since the fall of Adam, has been deceived into thinking that he can figure out reality without paying attention to the Word of God that he can figure out how to be happy, he can figure out how to organize his social structures, he can figure out how to have a good marriage, he can figure out how to raise a good family, he can figure out how to organize his society in terms of politics and economics without starting from the word of God. And yet the scripture tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof Is death. Any attempt to start to any degree, apart from a foundation in the Word of God, is to put at least one leg in the world of fantasy. And fantasy ultimately comes crashing down against the hard rock of reality. A third characteristic of human viewpoint thinking, the thinking of Satan, is. It's characterized by these two things, autonomy and antagonism. Two things that are somewhat similar, and yet they have different, different uh, aspects to them. By autonomy, I mean the deeply held orientation of your sin nature, that you can make life work apart from God, that you really don't need God or the Bible that when you get back into a corner, when the pressures of life really uh, close in around you, that you often react in with mental attitude sins of anger or bitterness or jealousy or whatever, thinking that somehow that's going to solve the problem. Or you respond in uh, overt actions that are sinful, thinking that somehow that's going to solve the problem uh, somehow, we blame God for whatever the problems are, but it 's this idea that is held by the sin nature that I can make life work apart from God, and when the problems come along, that 's the default position of your thinking that 's because we 're sinners, and that's the, the sin nature is our, even as believers it still tends to be our default position unless you have reprogrammed your thinking with the word of God. The second word that I'm using to define the essence of satanic thinking and all human viewpoint thinking is antagonism. It is ultimately antagonistic to the word of God. Now, we may see a lot of systems in life that that tend to sort of uh, have a veneer of of attractiveness to Christianity and, and defer to Christianity and refer defer to God, but ultimately, when you peel back the surface layers, there is a deep antagonism to a hundred percent dependence upon the Word of God for organizing and structuring our thought. It's not just the. It, it, it's not just if I can use a analogy of a of a house it's not just that the bricks and the mortar and the wood that's used in composing the house or the makeup of the house but that the basic blueprint has to be changed the blueprint of our thinking see the blueprint of every creature's thinking from the time you're born is a blueprint of autonomy and arrogance and what has to happen is that that has to be completely restructured to an attitude of humility and dependence and love toward God the Father. And that takes time to become re-educated. Most people don't want to be re-educated. They just want comfort. I've often used the example, I will use it again, that what happens with most people is a lot of people when they get saved, and it may not be true for you, But it's true for a lot of people that there's some element in their life they're not satisfied with. For some people, it's more extreme than others. Uh, It's not necessarily true in my case because I was six years old and I really didn't know whether or not I was satisfied or (laughs) unsatisfied. I was just a happy little kid. But eventually, as I grew up, I had to deal with the the whole issue of happiness and significance and meaning in life or all those things. But as you get older, this, this becomes more of a factor in people coming to Christ, and it may even become more of a factor once you're saved in getting oriented spiritually. But you tend to think that you can sort of make life work on your own without without God, and you really don't don't need God, and so people get caught up in a in a pursuit of happiness that often involves a lot of uh, behavior that ultimately brings m- misery, it brings destruction, it uh, destroys their mind or their body, and they, they get to a point where they're somewhat unhappy, and then they hear the gospel, and they think, hmm, well, I'll invite Jesus in to sort of clean up some of the mess. And so they think that Jesus is going to come in like an interior decorator and he's just going to change the curtains and repaint the kitchen and put a new countertop and maybe a new sink and he's going to paint upstairs and get rid of the old carpet and put down hardwoods and, and basically what you do is you, you just want to have a little reconstructive surgery on your own view of life. Adapt a few things from Christianity that's, that's comfortable but it's still in the same house. It's still on the same foundation. And what you're doing is is exactly what is depicted in this particular diagram that uh, Charlie developed, and that is that that we have all of this this thinking in our soul that's, that comes out of paganism, comes out of unbelief, comes out of this whole satanic thought form of arrogance and autonomy. And as soon as we get a biblical truth, we want to sort of re, uh, refashion it. We almost instantly reinterpret it, reshape it, refine it so that it fits within that old broken-down house, and we put it in, the, in one of the rooms, and now that room looks a lot better, but it's still in the same rundown house built on the same autonomous foundation. And so... As doctrine gets reabsorbed and transformed, it no longer is biblical truth. But it has the veneer, the facade of biblical Christianity and biblical truth, so we feel real good about ourselves. But the reality is that when the Holy Spirit wants to revamp your life, he shows up with a bulldozer and he tears down the whole wants to tear down the whole house including the foundation and rebuild it on a foundation of solid biblical truth he wants to tear down everything that you've put together in your own head thinking that somehow you've got life figured out and you can have uh, have a measure of happiness and you're going to include God and scripture in that but it only becomes another facet of your thought and you don't go through that process of the complete overhaul. So we have to be very careful in, in this whole process, and this is really the process of the spiritual life. It's a process of sanctification. It's a process of, of uh, renewing your mind, uh, Romans twelve two. So we come to our fourth, fourth point here on this slide, that these two attributes lie at the root of all human thought systems, not based on the Word of God. And by thought systems, I'm not necessarily talking about formal systems such as Platonic philosophy or rationalism, you have pragmatism. You can list hundreds of different thought systems. Some are organized, some are disorganized. Some are purely philosophical, some are very well-developed, some are not developed, some are not philosophical, some are more pragmatic, some are just pure emotion, some are rational, some are irrational, some partake of whatever... Uh, is necessary just in order to make things work at any uh, particular moment. But these these thought systems seem so comfortable to us because there's a, an affinity between these thought systems and our sin nature. And so often... Depending on the culture you come out of, whatever that culture may be—whether it's an Asian culture, whether it's a Russian culture, whether it's an African culture, a primitive culture, a sophisticated culture, whatever it is—you are inculcated in the planks of that thought system from the time you come out of the gray, uh, cradle all the way till the time you get you get saved, and. The default position of your sin nature always goes back to that because that's your comfort zone. That is this comfort zone of your sin nature. And so often we fail to recognize those things because only by the word of God can we really get far enough out from who we are and our own culture to be able to have an honest, objective critique of just what we're thinking. And it, that's hard for a lot of people. Some people never never can do that. They can't ever understand why somebody thinks differently from them. Uh, it's hard for us. And a lot of us, if you grow up in a homogenous society where everybody thinks the same and everybody's pretty pretty similar, it, it's very difficult to understand why somebody would think differently. I'm sure there's there's a lot of people who have grown up within a Islamic culture, never been exposed to any Western idea, that think that, uh, anybody from the West is just absolutely horrid. They've just been—that's their culture. That's the mindset of their thinking. They've never been exposed to another, another way of thinking, and so we have to understand these things because it just is true for us. May not be as extreme, but it's just as true for us as it is for anybody coming from a, a more overt pagan pagan culture. Now what we have to do in this whole process is understand some of these fundamental dynamics that are going on in terms of just thinking itself. So I alluded to this last week, and I'm going to put this slide up here and show you a little bit of the difference. Let's just start with what biblical thinking is supposed to look like. Biblical thinking starts off with a creator God, a triune creator God, not just any God, not just some some um, uh, being that's out there that's ill-defined, not just some unmoved mover, some prime mover, uh, whatever philosophy may come up with, but a God who is totally radically distinct from everything else, a creator God who is the ultimate reference point for everything but stands totally apart from everything that's in creation. So I'm picturing this with a brick wall. This God is totally distinct, totally other. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is completely different. He has created a finite universe. You can't have two infinites, basic law of logic. He has created a finite universe, and in that universe he creates matter and energy, creates light, vegetation, animals. He creates man. Man. When he creates man, God as the creator defines who man is. You don't discover who man is by going to sociology. You may go to sociology and discover some truths, lower case truth. But how do you know that next week you won't discover some truth that changes your, your view today? You don't, unless you have some ultimate reference point, which is God. So God defines who man is, and this is also true for psychology. Is who is man in terms of his soul? The word psychology, it, when you break it down from the Greek word psychos, psyche rather, and logos, logos is a study of the soul. The Bible claims to be the sole authoritative source of information about the soul. Freud, Jung, Maslow, all of these secular psychologists come along, and on the basis of empiricism seek to speak authoritatively about that which God claims to have exclusive authority in. and so they come up with all of their guesses and their imaginative uh, reasonings which the Bible refers to as simple vanity to tell you who man is and And this is so bred into our culture it is we are such a psychologized culture that And and when you go to work, uh, I hear more and more about people apply for a job. first thing they have to do is take a psychological assessment. See, you've just been forced into the world's structure. By taking that, you validate their concept of what's right and wrong. That's really tough. Then you come along and you say, well... Robbie, what do you say about the fact that that I'm applying for Dallas Seminary and they give me a psychological assessment? See, that validates this. No, it doesn't. When I went to Dallas Seminary, you had to pass a GRE. You had an academic qualification. Now, you don't have to do that. You can get into a graduate school of theology without taking a graduate exam. You just have to be, according to somebody else, psychologically healthy according to whose standard, who set these, who defined these assessments. See, God says he's the one who tells us who we are and what our problem is. He tells us what our purpose is, that man is distinct from all other living creatures and he's distinct from everything else. He's not in this singular chain of being that goes back to early Greeks, but he is totally Different because he's created in the image of God and he's created to rule over man. He, is, he has certain social institutions that are established by God so that in society with other people, there can be order and, uh, and, and achievement. All of these things come about. So God defines man as a social creature. He says, I'm going to make man male and female. He establishes marriage. He establishes family. Later on, after the fall, he establishes human government. That man is responsible for governing himself and punishing those who violate the rules and the laws of society. So we can go to the scripture and we can learn things that relate to um, law and politics. Not that the Mosaic law is to be something we take and say that's our constitution, but that as a perfect law, Romans 7, Paul said the law was perfect, just, and holy. Period. And it is therefore a model for any other nation that if you want true genuine freedom, then a pattern can be developed from looking at the Mosaic law. You don't just pull it over completely because it's a contract that's written by God for the Jewish people who are his chosen people for a specific purpose. But God is the one who tells us what marriage is. God is the one who tells us what a family is. God is the one who tells us what the structure and order within the family is. It's a patriarchy. Surprise, surprise, not a matriarchy. And that the husband, the father, is the head of the home. That means the buck stops with dad doesn't say he's the head of the home only if he's worthy to be the head of the home, only if he's Christian, only if he's mature. doesn't say that. And that's where we get our whole concept in our society just of respect for authority because a person is in the place or office that they're in, they do respect whether they deserve it or not. We respect a president no matter how unethical he may be, no matter how pathetic his personal ethics may be, no matter what allegations there may be, we treat him with respect and honor because he's the president of the United States, not because he's worthy of it. Same thing is true for children. You may have parents who have serious problems, but you honor your parents because they're in that office of authority. If you don't, you're setting yourself up as being more knowledgeable than God, and over their authority, you can determine whether they should be honored or not. That's the same kind of thing Satan did. That's why this authority thing is such a such a real problem for people. Is because the ultimate issue with Satan was that he thought he could define the the boundaries for authority better than God did. The same thing happens in a marriage. You're, a woman may be married to a man who is not. Worthy, who is failing in certain areas. That does not justify her to fail in other areas. Two wrongs never did make a right. And so the woman is responsible to follow the authority and the headship of the man because that is the office of the husband. Now that doesn't mean you put yourself in a position of where well, you're going to get killed or something of that nature. There, You have to bring in other factors, but it used to be that if a husband provided for the family, and he was he uh, took care of the children, and he was a hard worker, then that was wonderful. Now a husband can be a wonderful individual. He can be a spiritual leader. He can be a uh, good provider for the home. But if he's not uh, helping the wife become self-actualized or whatever, Term is popular coming out of some kind of Maslowian hierarchy, then the woman says, Well, you don't make me feel right. You know, I'm just not, I'm just not becoming all I can be with, with this guy, so I gotta go find another guy, or just go out on my own. That's the influence of feminism within our world culture that, that shapes the thinking of so many women today. Men have their other problems. Men get this idea of all kinds of issues related to what it is to be a man, what it is to be a leader, and they, they think that that is focused completely upon being the breadwinner, and providing for the family. But it is providing for the family in numerous ways, being the spiritual head of the home, uh, being uh, the source of value, stability, exemplifying in his own life that which he believes the word of God Teaches that is what makes a man a biblical uh, man, a spiritual uh, spiritual leader. But husbands, you're married to a carnal woman. She's got a sin nature inside that body, and sometimes that gets out of whack. And you've got to learn to love her not in spite of what, she, not not because of who she is, but in spite of that. And and why is the same thing? You're married to some guy who's a lousy, rotten, fallen sinner, and he may fail and fail miserably for a while, and you know it's not up to you to say, well, I'm just going to blow off this guy's authority and go find somebody else. You know that's just cosmic thinking. You know God defines the what marriage is. He instituted marriage. He instituted social all the various social institutions. Uh, he's the one who's the source of ethics. All, all this is defined by God. And when we are not orienting our thinking to his thinking, then we're living in a fantasy world. It may be a very comfortable fantasy world. It used to be the, I used to hear the saying that if you you constructed your own fantasy world, fantasy home, then you were neurotic. If you moved in, you were psychotic. Uh, it kind of characterizes all. Oh, everybody dominated by that sin nature is neurotic. I don't even like using that term because it somehow validates the whole psychological system out of, out of which it comes. But everybody's dysfunctional. You know the old book that came out in the 60s, I'm okay, you're okay? The Bible says you're not okay and neither am I. None of us are okay. We're all dirty, lousy, rotten sinners. And the only hope is the Word of God... And being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have this, this is the biblical system here, that God speaks to everything. Ethics, aesthetics, that God is the original creator of beauty. You can't understand beauty if you don't start with God. He's the one who came up with the idea. You can't understand music. Music was in, the, in God's thinking long before it was ever voiced by the angels. So if you're, if you're even thinking about music, if you don't start with some eternal realities as laid out in the Word of God, then you're never going to under, really understand it. You can find out a certain amount of things about it, just like you can talk about a live oak tree out uh, in the front yard, and you and the unbeliever can seem to say a lot of things about it, but for the unbeliever, it's a product of chance. It's just an accident. But for you, it was something that was specifically designed by God and was in his thinking billions of years ago in eternity past. Fundamentally, you're not talking about the same tree when you're talking to an unbeliever. You only think you are. And if you think and don't really understand what I just said and think, no, no, we're really talking about the same tree, then you haven't grasped the radical distinction between biblical thought and human viewpoint thought. So Truth is what resides in God. He establishes its reality. God is truth. He defines what reality is. And he speaks to everything he creates, or else he doesn't speak to anything he creates. Those are the only two options. And so it is God who defines everything. But Satan comes along, and he wants to redefine it. And so he works within the thinking of human culture. And this is what all satanic thought ultimately looks like. Notice there's nothing on the left. God's been removed. At least the creator God who speaks to everything, who is the ultimate source of all meaning and definition and truth. He's removed. All you have now is the finite universe has been replaced by an infinite universe. And notice where God is. God's at the top of this chain whatever you want to deify becomes that God. It's usually something else in the chain, but it may just be a prime mover, unmoved mover, uncaused cause, whatever you want to put up there, but he's still within this chain of being. That's an old Aristotelian uh, concept, that everything is part of the same basic being, and that is just the ancient version of modern Darwinism. And so all of these things on the right whether it's created things, animals, man, all the things man is involved in, uh, marriage, family, law, ethics, aesthetics, art, music, literature, they all become defined by something else within that si- on, on that side of the chart. And that leads to relativism. And ultimately, because you reject any sort of external absolute that speaks absolute truth to everything in life, everything in creation, you will always end up in relativistic thinking. And man is born with a little relativistic barometer, or shall we say a magnet, in his makeup called the sin nature. You're born with this orientation to reject an absolute authority because the center of your little universe from the day you were born was you. And that's true for every single sin nature. And the process of growing as a believer is to, is to get beyond that. And Satan has various ways in which he inculcates us in his kind of thinking. And because our sin nature is attracted to it, because it's the way your parents thought and your friends thought and your teachers thought, you just think it's common sense. But a lot of times common sense is not common sense. It's just what works within that culture. And what works within that culture is what has affinity to the autonomous thought forms within that culture. And it just seems so natural. What seems as natural and normal and right to you may be abnormal, strange, and downright uh, suicidal to somebody living in another culture because they have totally, totally different influences and presuppositions than you do. And they think you're crazy. They think we're absolutely nuts as Americans, and we still, to whatever degree, we're based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. But as a Christian, you really set yourself over against everybody else. That's why the world is hostile to Christians. While worldliness is hostile to, while the world was hostile to Christ, while religion is truly hostile to the Bible. Why is it that everybody can pick on? no, No one can pick on anything but everybody can pick on Christianity. It always boils down to that, where Christianity is everybody's favorite whipping boy, but you can't say anything negative about anybody else. Why? Because Christianity is absolute truth. And at the core of man's being, there is this antagonism to truth, because in arrogance, man wants to be the ultimate definer of everything. And the bottom line is that we have to do what the scripture says let me find the slide Romans 12.2 don't be conformed to this world we're born conformed to the world we grow up being conformed to the world that is our normal modus operandi but once you become saved you have to be transformed that engages your volition. We have to think. We have to think about the elements in our thinking, and we have to think about the blueprint of our thinking. Both have to change, because if you change the elements of your thinking without changing the blueprint of your thinking, you're still going to be thinking biblical thoughts but within the framework of pagan concepts. So we have to be transformed by the renovation of our mind that we may demonstrate. That's the idea of proof there. Demonstrate in our life will become an evidence in the angelic conflict that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that's what that's, that, that's the marching order for a pastor. That's the marching order for a church. That is why we exist, is to overhaul our thinking. And it's not easy. And not everybody wants that challenge. A lot of people go to churches where their thinking, their worldliness is, is not ever challenged. It's, the dominant idea in our culture for the last 100 years or so has been existentialism and mysticism, and its counterpart in Christianity is the Pentecostal charismatic movement. They're existential mystics. How comfortable. Why do you think the Pentecostal charismatic movement has grown so much in the last 100 years? Because you can, become a, you can get saved, and you can become a Pentecostal charismatic and never change how you think. You're still living in your comfort zone. You're just a worldly believer. Same problem happened with the Corinthians back in the New Testament. It's nothing new, but every generation, just like freedom, every generation has to earn it on its own. Every generation has to relearn these lessons. Every generation of believers has to decide whether doctrine is going to be first or whether self is going to be first. Are you going to be dominated by the world? or Are you going to be dominated by Scripture? And the only source of freedom is going to be the Word of God. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, they claimed that they were free, but they weren't. See, every one of us is enslaved three ways. You are a slave to Satan's dominion. We're all born under Satan's authority. We're slaves to our own sin nature. And we are slaves to the cosmic system around us that shapes our thinking. And it's only when you can break those shackles, first at the cross, by trusting in Christ as your Savior, when you're transferred from the domain of Satan to the authority of Christ. And then second, by the ongoing study of the word of God that transforms your thinking, can you have real freedom. This is why Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And by truth, he meant what I had up there on the slide, God, who's the... Originator of absolute truth that's over against everything in the creation only by orienting your thinking to his absolute truth is there real genuine freedom that's the foundation for all other freedom let's bow our heads together in closing prayer